Yeah, what a great privilege we have now to open the Word of God together. So I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them once again to our study of Paul's letter to the believers in Rome. We're going to spend our time this morning in Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And we are going to finish up with what we began last Lord's Day. And at the same time, we are going to finish up our study of this incredible and heart-enriching part of God's Word. As I said last week, it's somewhat of a sad day for me as a pastor and preacher and studier of Scripture uh, to leave the book of Romans for many, many, many years, uh, even before arriving here. It has seemingly probably been my favorite book of the entire Scriptures, although I'm not sure we could categorize any of them better than any other. They are God's Word, and they are as profitable as every other book, as Paul tells us as he's writing to Timothy, that all Scriptures are profitable. But Romans has a special place in my own heart, as I just have loved Paul's words here to the to the believers there and all the richness of the doctrine of salvation and all that we have learned. And so we'll probably return back to it from time to time, but this will be for this at least study our final time here. And I want to begin by just reading chapter 16 for us, since that will be the time we spend together. And as you notice, it is 27 verses, but we'll get through it all as you'll see as we move on. So follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I commend you to our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church, which is in Sencrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my, for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Epinatus, my beloved, who is the first convert of Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Hunius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphania and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus and Phlegon and Hermas and Petrobus and Hermas and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and her sister, his sister, and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. 
And now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all, therefore I am rejoicing over you, But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you, and Toward us, the brother, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifest, and by the scriptures and the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. We began our study of this epistle some three years ago. By some estimation, that's a long time, and by other pastors in the ministry, including Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, that's not very long at all. In fact, we rushed our way through it. Donald Gray Barnhouse took 11 years to preach through Romans. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached in Romans up through chapter 14 and preached over 435 sermons. This is only our 119th sermon, and this morning we are coming to the end. The well-known English Bible translator William Tyndale placed at the beginning of his translation of the book of Romans these important words, He said, quote, no man can read this book too often or study it too well, because the more it is studied, the easier it is, the more it is searched, the more precious things are found in it, so great treasure of spiritual things lie hidden in it, unquote. Tyndale wrote that about this epistle over 400 years ago. And I would venture to say that after our study, if we were asked to write words about our understanding and love for the book of Romans, we might write similar words. It's a masterpiece, really, of theological insight, particularly as you come to the first 11 chapters, because it begins with the need for the gospel. It begins with the reality that the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation because every person needs the gospel. Why? Because every person is guilty of sin before a holy God. And so Paul, in his wisdom, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit in writing these words, clearly lays out that the righteousness needed to be acceptable before God is provided only in Christ. Chapter 1 and verse 5, or I should say chapter 5 all through it, justification is found in Christ. 
And the Apostle Paul continues after that to show that the spiritual living, the spiritual living that comes from the gospel and the assurance that we have because of the gospel are completely secure by the power of God. The same gospel that saves, the same power of God in the gospel to save is the same power of God that completely secures us in that salvation. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to show in chapters 9 through 11 that the work of gospel in history, the history of the Jews, will in fact come to pass, just as he said. Not one part will be negated. Not one part will go by the wayside. And of course, as you come to chapters 12 through 16, we get the undeniable exhortation of practicing out this reality of an understood gospel, of a gospel that says, practicing out this gospel in life, the exhortation to live as Christians. We began with those foundational words in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, I urge you, therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and perfect will. So being saved, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, the the reality of being a true Christian also means living out that faith in everyday life, living by and with an understanding of that salvation every day. In other words, knowing the gospel also means to be living out the gospel in and throughout every circumstance of life. We are gospel Christians. We are Christians that are to exemplify and reflect and picture and live out and the outcome of our life be the gospel. And so we have therefore been encouraged throughout our entire three-year study of this book to practice our theology, to practice our Christian living, to live out the gospel, to use our God-given spiritual gifts to serve one another as we serve in love in the church and to use our God-given life as a reflection to those who do not know Christ as we subject ourselves to all that God has allowed in our lives by His grace and for our growth as we subject ourselves to the governing given authorities over us to fully spend ourselves in service to God in all of life. And so we come then to our study today, and we need to remember all that has been said thus far to us. We cannot just set it aside. We cannot forget it. We must remember it because in the eyes of the world, what we do because of who we are is absolute foolishness. Let me say that again. In the eyes of the world, what we do 
because of who we are is absolute foolishness. It's crazy. In the eyes of the world, the Apostle Paul was a complete fool. In the In the original language of the New Testament, the word for fool is moron. He was an absolute moron. He was a nobody. His life was seemingly of no effect. And yet when you open the New Testament and you read it and you understand it for what God has said, we know very, very differently. Because God used Paul to change the course of predictable history. None of our lives would be as they are today were it not for the gospel heart of the Apostle Paul. And that's what we find on display, really, in our final chapters. We find just what it is that a gospel heart looks like in action, in practice. We find really the Apostle Paul showing us from his own life, from his own words, from chapter 15 and verse 14, all the way through the end of chapter 16, really the expression of all that Paul has exhorted from chapter 12 on, the living out of the Christian life, the gospel heart on display. We find that as Paul tells us his future plans and tells us about his life and and encourages others. We see a gospel heart on display. Because as Christians, we are to be gospel people. Like I said, if we know Jesus Christ, if we have been saved by grace through faith, then that faith is to be actively lived out. It is not to be hidden under a bush, as Jesus said. It is not to be something shrouded. It is to be seen. In these final two chapters, we get a picture of what that looks like. Now, you'll remember that last Lord's Day, we began to look at seven characteristics of a gospel-driven heart. Seven characteristics of a gospel-driven heart from the life of the Apostle Paul. And just by way of review, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on what we've covered already, but I think it's wise for us just to be reminded of them. A gospel-driven heart is a gospel duty, Christ-glorifying, gospel-visionary, prayerful heart. That is simply to say that the heart that is driven by the gospel, a life that is reflected by a gospel-driven heart, and we understand that to be any Christian and every Christian because that's a true Christian. A gospel-driven heart is first a heart that sees all of life as gospel duty. Gospel duty. We saw that in the life of the Apostle Paul in chapter 15, verses 14 through 16. Remember what Paul said? You're able to admonish one another. You have knowledge. You're full of goodness, in verse 14. And I've written to you very boldly, very very strictly, very straightforward on many, many things because I want to remind you again, why? Because that's my task as a Christian. I have a job to do. I am a minister of Christ Jesus. I'm a minister, a priest of the gospel of God. 
In other words, I know you're fully equipped. I, I know that in Christ you have everything you need for life and for godliness. You're equipped to give counsel to one another. You're equipped to help one another. You ought to be in each other's lives, discipling one another as Christians do. But I have to do what we Christians do. We have a sacred duty. We are all ministers of Christ Jesus. In other words, Christianity, living out the gospel, is not what we do, it's who we are. Let me say that again. Living out the gospel, being a gospel Christian, being a Christian as the Scripture describes it, is not something you do. It isn't something compartmentalized to certain aspects of your life, like on Sunday or at that odd time when maybe you're with somebody who happens to ask you a question about Jesus. No, it's what, it's who you are. Everything flows with the gospel. All of life. Therefore, a gospel-driven heart sees life as a Christian duty. Secondly, we heard that a gospel-driven heart is a Christ-glorifying heart. A Christ-glorifying heart. Verses 17 to 19 of chapter 15, Therefore in Christ Jesus I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. I'm not going to presume to speak about anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. That is simply to say that whatever is accomplished in and through our submission to the through the Holy Spirit to the things of God and what God accomplishes in by our Christian ministry, the gospel-driven heart understands that it is because of Christ. We don't pat ourselves on the back. We don't take credit. We don't start notching our little belt loops and say, hey, look what I have done. Look at this kingdom that I have built. We don't have the heart of a Nebuchadnezzar. No, we have the heart of the Apostle Paul who says, I'm not going to boast in anything except what Christ has done. He has done the accomplishing. I have accomplished nothing. So the gospel-driven heart constantly and consistently attributes any success to Christ. So that like Paul at the end of Romans chapter 16 says, glory be to God forever. Third, the gospel-driven heart is a heart with gospel vision. A heart with gospel vision. We saw that in verse 20 to 29. And the Apostle Paul was laying out for the believers in Rome exactly why he was coming. He always had a heart to come. He had a heart to fellowship. But, but that heart of desire to be with them was, all, was, was often sidetracked by a greater reality. And that was the vision that the gospel would go forth to where the gospel had never been heard. Paul wanted to go to Spain. As we look through that passage, the last Lord's Day, we saw how the Apostle Paul desire never was fulfilled by God. He had the desire to go to Spain, but he never got there. He was continually looking beyond, continually striving to ensure that all people heard of Jesus Christ, that salvation was in Christ alone. That was Paul's desire. He, he didn't matter where he went. It didn't matter what he did. He, didn't, he, he wanted all people there to know Jesus Christ. That's how we need to look at the world, beloved. That's how we need to look at the world. That's how we need to look at those around us. We need to see it with gospel vision. 
Each and every person in our world is an opportunity for kingdom expansion. All people need Christ. Doesn't matter if it's people in our own families, the people in our own workplaces, the people in and around us, they all need the gospel. And without a gospel vision, they may not hear. Simply because we never set out on the journey. So a gospel-driven heart is a gospel-duty heart. It's a Christ-glorifying heart. It's a gospel-vision heart. And then fourth, we learn that the gospel-driven heart is a gospel-praying heart. Gospel-praying heart. Of course, we saw in verse 30 to 33, the Apostle Paul asking for prayer from the people of Rome in order that he might be delivered, in order that His service would prove acceptable as he's bringing this gift to the saints in Jerusalem and that God would, in fact, bring him to the people in Rome. What a heart. That's our heart. Our heart needs to be a heart of prayer. Every aspect of Paul's request, every aspect of what he asked for in his prayer had undertones of the gospel not being hindered. Lord, do this with me. Have these people pray for me. In fact, have them agonize in prayer with me and for me, not because of me, not because it benefits me in some way, but because of the gospel. I don't want the gospel to be hindered in any kind of way. He wanted deliverance from those who were hostile to the gospel. Why? So that he could continue to preach the gospel. Paul says, I want you to pray for deliverance for me because when I'm silenced, the gospel doesn't go out. I want the gospel to go forth. So, so allow that deliverance to happen, Lord. We, we want the gospel to go forth. Apostle Paul wanted to succeed in bringing the monetary gift to the saints in Jerusalem so that they might be encouraged through the gospel's work in others so that they would see the heart of the Macedonians as they gave to the people in Jerusalem and how the gospel was going far and wide and encouraging people, and those people were living the gospel. They would be encouraged to do the same. The Apostle Paul wanted to come and see them so that he could be refreshed by them and so that through them they could send him on his way to Spain for greater gospel ministry. So the Apostle Paul said, pray for me. It's all about the gospel. It's all about getting the gospel out. And so, too, we need to pray. We need to pray in that way. God desires us to pray. God commands us to pray. And God answers the prayers of his people. It's the means through which God has chosen to accomplish much of what he does. Well, number five in our list of seven, we come to in this first section of Romans chapter 16. It's a rather lengthy section, actually, but it's very helpful for us. And it is this. Number five, the gospel-driven heart is a gospel-truth heart. The gospel-driven heart is a gospel-truth heart. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? It, it really, we see it in verse 1 through verse 20, a large section. But but we see a gospel-truth heart being manifested and being being shaped or or being shared here. Because what I mean is that a gospel-driven heart decides relationships on the basis of gospel truth. 
A gospel-driven heart decides relationships on the basis of gospel truth. Notice the contrast being made from verse 1 through verse 19. In verses 1 through verse 16... You have this grand cavalcade, if you will, this staccato fashion where Paul mentions greet this person and greet this person and greet this person in their house and and this person and that person. And he goes down 27, 28 names, I think, plus others he doesn't mention by name. All listed there as those whom he wants them to welcome. Welcome as Christians, welcome one another. Greet them in this way. And he even defines what that kind of looks like in verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. This is how all the churches of Christ greet you. And so Paul mentions in the first 16 verses all of these individuals by name, and he mentions them either they are mentioned as those who are part of a certain house church or as the sister of one of the men of the house church, like in Verse 15, he says, greet Philologus and Julia, Nerusus and his sister. When you come to verse 17, there's a drastic change. There's a drastic contrast that's made about other individuals. In fact, he says, don't greet them. He says, keep your eye on them. Keep your eye on them. Don't treat these people the same way as the ones I just exhorted you to treat Phoebe, Aquila, and Priscilla, and all of the others that I mentioned. Don't don't greet these ones like that. They're different. They're in a whole other category. They are ones who cause dissensions and divisions or hindrances. That's really the idea. Schism is the word in the original. They're the ones who cause dissension among one another and schisms, divisions. And so you notice that the Apostle Paul is making a distinction between individuals throughout his ministry life. And those distinctions are being made not by some kind of personal liking, not by some personal disliking or some idiosyncrasy in personalities. No, he's rather making an evaluation on how they live, which is an indication of how they handle the truth. He's saying, listen, here's the reflection of their life, right? Greet Phoebe. Why? She's a servant of the church, which is in Sancria. Receive her. By the way, that's the same word where he says receive one another in chapters 15, chapter 15 and 14. Receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints. Help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. Why? Because she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. See, Paul says, listen, I want you to greet her. I want you to treat her with the highest of Christian greetings and, 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 and love. Why? Because because her heart is reflected in how she lives. She's reflecting real Christianity. She's reflecting a gospel heart. Same with Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risk their own necks. I mean, these are people who are willing to put their life on the line for the sake of the Apostle Paul. Why? Because they loved Christ. Because they loved the gospel. Because they wanted others to know Christ. 
fact, not only do I want you to give thanks for them, I give thanks. All the churches of the Gentiles need to thank them. Read Epinetus, verse 5, who's my beloved, the first convert of Christ from Asia. You want to know why people in the Asia continent know Jesus Christ? There's the guy's name. He was the first convert there, and obviously that spread. If you ever wanted to know of a virus they'll never get rid of, it's the gospel. The only virus that's really good. Praise God, they can't find a cure for it. Greet Mary, she's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen, my fellow prisoners. These are guys who are in jail because of their faith. They're not capital A apostles. Paul's not saying that. He's saying they were outstanding among the apostles. In other words, they had high esteem in the eyes and mind of the apostles. Those who were in Christ even before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Stachus, my beloved. Apellus, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsmen. See, all of these people, all down through the line, people who were reflecting the ministry, reflecting a Christ, a gospel heart. Paul says, that's the relationship I have with these people. These are people throughout his ministry. As he goes along, people who were involved in the life, involved in the ministry of the gospel, always standing together with Paul. Paul says, I want you to greet them like that. But not these others. Not these others. I don't want you to greet these ones the same as I told you to greet the other ones. I want you to greet the other ones, not because of simply who they are, but rather because they're being faithful to live out the truth of the gospel. It's not so with the others. That's not like the others, beginning in verse 17. I want you to not greet them. I want you to be very careful about them. Why? Because the gospel heart is a careful heart. Why? Because it loves the truth. It loves the truth. It's a discerning heart. It's a careful heart. It is a, a discerning in the sense of judging in the right way kind of heart, even if that means it has to separate from someone. It's exactly what verse 17 says. I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. You read those verses, you say, man, Paul had no sympathy. No, that's true. There was no sense of sympathy for those who played fast and loose with the truth of the gospel. Why? Because of the damning nature of that reality. You play fast and loose with the truth of doctrine, with the truth of the gospel, and guess what? People get damned to hell because they believe the wrong thing. In fact, the implication here is that when there is a persistence of someone claiming Christ, and yet uh, embracing an aberrant theology? The, the, the implication here is that the gospel truth heart, those who are living gospel truth, who have a gospel truth heart, they don't just let that go under the guise of loving them. In other words, they just don't go, well, I know, but I'm not going to say anything about it. 
That's not a gospel truth-loving heart. No, Paul exhorts the believers in Rome to turn away from them. That sounds harsh in our fleshly thinking. It's not harsh in the mind of God. Remember, these are God's words. You say, well, that's not harsh in the mind of God. No, why? Because gospel love is a protective love. Gospel love is a protective love. It protects not simply others, but it protects others by protecting the truth. When we really love one another, we protect each other. When we really love we love one another from a gospel-loving heart, we protect each other from flaky and biblically untrue doctrine. In fact, look how verse 18 describes them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Now listen, I'm just going to give you a quick little litmus test for checking theological ideas. Right, you hear all kinds of theological ideas that float around in, in Christendom and evangelical circles from time to time, all these kinds of things. I'm going to give you a little litmus test for how to identify whether it's good or not. Here it is, just a simple little litmus test. If an espoused theological idea, if an espoused doctrine that someone is talking about, if it, by way of its implication, by way of its outcome, misdefines the nature and character of God in any way, as God has defined himself, if a theological idea by way of implication, misdefines the character and nature of God in any way, then that theological idea is off in some way. It is wrong in some way, or it's even wrong altogether. In other words, no teaching of Scripture is right if the outcome of that teaching in some way redefines the character and nature of God. God is who he is by his definition of himself and not ours. And if our understanding of theological truth in any kind of way misdefines how God has defined himself, then our doctrine is wrong. And where has he revealed himself? In his word. In and through his word. Oh, sure, we can see the invisible attributes of God and all that he's made. He's told us that. And it is clear of who he is. And he has revealed to us exactly who he is in the person of Jesus Christ. In his word. And so if in any way it redefines the character and nature of God, then the theology is problematic, if not just fully in error. Now, that doesn't mean that we may be confused. That doesn't mean that sometimes that's the problem, we're just confused. 
And we need to go back to the scriptures and, and look at them a little more deeply and try to get ourselves in line with exactly what the scriptures teach. We need to further study. We have to work hard to rightly divide the scriptures so that we can understand exactly what the scriptures are saying and process the implications rightly. But if in doing so, we somehow alter the definition of God by way of how God has defined himself, then we are the problem. Our understanding is wrong and we must be challenged. And any theology worth believing is always willing to stand up under scrutiny. Always. So if you come across anything or any person espousing some theology that's unwilling to be questioned and go to the truth of God to explain it, then let that be a red flag. Let that be a red flag to you. So a gospel-driven heart is a gospel-truth heart. Paul is encouraging these people to differentiate that in their relationships. A gospel-driven heart is a gospel-truth heart, and it expresses itself. It expresses itself by loving others on that basis, on the basis of truth. Number six, number six, a gospel-driven heart is a viral gospel heart. A viral gospel heart. You might even say contagious. A gospel-driven heart is a gospel-contagious heart. Notice verse 21 to 24, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting as you read that, as you've Noticed in the first 16 verses, all these people that Paul writes about greeting with this holy greeting, if you will, this set-apart greeting, this greeting that is special to the Christians, and yet those who you don't stand with. And it's interesting, here is a list of another eight people, another eight names, and from all appearances, they are all chiming in. You can only imagine, here's Paul standing in a room, if you will, Tertius is his amanuensis, or his secretary writing everything down and here's these eight guys all chiming in as Paul is giving all of these greetings to all of these different people why because they too who have been in the battle in the war with Paul loving the ministry doing what the gospel heart does they want the church to understand that they send their greetings that they send their love as well this is the, the viral nature of a gospel heart. This is the contagious reality of a gospel heart. Paul doing what Paul does and those around him saying, hey, I, I want to get involved. I want to be part of that. I, I want to do that too. It's the same heart you see in the Macedonian believers in 2 Corinthians 8 who are giving the gift of Paul that he's bringing to Jerusalem. They begged Paul to be involved. Hey, listen, we know we don't have anything. We're the poorest of poor in the country, but we're begging you. We don't want to miss out on the blessing of just being part of the gift. It's a gospel heart. It's exactly what you see going on here. 
Hey, Paul, tell them that I greet them too. Uh, Tell them that I say hello. Tell them I'm thinking kindly of them. I want them to know that. Hey, Paul, I want to encourage them also. So let them know I'm praying for them. Why do I bring all that up? Because a heart that is a gospel-driven heart is a viral heart. The viral heart. A viral heart infects those who are around it. That's the nature of a gospel heart. It infects those who are around it. They just want to be around people like that. You ever been around somebody like that? I hope we would say, yeah, I know this person. He's sitting right over there. She's sitting right over there. She's sitting right here next to me. That's what a gospel-driven heart is. That's what attracts us to other believers. We just want to be around people like that. Our dear, sweet brother who went to glory a while back, Joe, he was somebody like that, wasn't he? He was gospel-driven. Gospel-driven heart was contagious. You were around him, you just wanted to do what he was doing. We hear a lot about viral contagion today. But oh, think about what a different place the church would be and the church should be. The most contagious virus in our midst ought to be the gospel-driven heart. That's what it ought to be. Can make all the difference in the world. A heart driven by the gospel is what God uses. So what does a gospel heart look like? Well, a gospel-driven heart is a gospel-duty heart. It's a Christ-glorifying heart, a gospel-vision heart, a gospel-praying heart, a gospel-truth heart, and a viral gospel heart. And finally, number seven. Number seven. A gospel-driven heart is a gospel-trusting heart. A gospel-trusting heart. Notice verse 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. And according to the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all nations, leading to obedience of faith. In the end of it all, the gospel-driven heart is a gospel-trusting heart. It's not a timid heart. It's not a heart that cowers in the background. It is a gospel-trusting heart. What do I mean? I mean that Paul and all Christians, all gospel-driven heart believers, live knowing that it is God who does the work. That it is God who accomplishes all of it. Much like a 
Christ's glorifying heart. This is the reality of in it all and through it all, God is the one who's making it happen. And notice how this is stated. He says in verse 25, Now to him, that is God, who is able to establish you. He's able to establish you. That may not seem like much on the surface. But when you understand the root of the word being used here for establish, the whole idea is the idea of propping something up. The thing used to prop something else up. In other words, it is God who is propping us up. Paul says, now to God who is the one propping you up. It's God who is involved in all of this. It is God who's undergirding this. The only reason you have a gospel heart is because God is propping you up in it all. In other words, it's God who's doing the work. It is God who's propping up the ministry of the gospel. I love how the Apostle Paul said it to the Thessalonian believers. As he was writing them, as we studied that years ago, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, here's how he says it. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may, here's the word again, establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm praying that God brings us to you and that God would cause you to increase in your understanding, increase in your love for one another and for everybody in the right way as a truth loving heart drives itself just as we do, just as we're trying to live out as an example to you so that you see it in us as we live it out so that he may prop you up for the day when Christ returns. The emphasis at the end of our study of Romans is to understand that spiritually it is God and God only who props us up and causes us to remain strong and faithful. It's not us. It's not by our own strength, by our own power. It's because God is propping us up. God is able continually. That's the idea. That's participle, this continuing action, this ability, this power of God, which not only saved us, now it's the power of God to prop us up according to the gospel and according to notice the preaching of Jesus Christ and according to notice the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past. What's that? That Christ lives in us, that Jew and Gentile are one, that it wasn't only for Jews, but that in Christ, the world is being saved. But now it's, it's manifested. See, we understand that now they didn't get it then, but we understand it now. And by the scriptures of the prophets, Listen, we cannot live without knowing the truth. We are not saved without seeing the truth, hearing the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ. We do not grow in our sanctification without remaining in and with and attached to the vine who is Jesus Christ. 
It is the scriptures, the truth of the scriptures. And so Paul emphasizes this at the end so that we will not fall. Paul's saying, listen, I just want you to fully trust in him. I want your gospel-driven heart to be a gospel-trusting heart, fully trust in him. Life for the believers in Rome wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't going to be easy. It wasn't easy already. But God is able to make them stand. And he does that for us. He does that for us. How? By means of understanding that in Christ we live eternally. Through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the good news of Christ, we have eternal life in Christ. What, what do we have to fear? What do we have to fear? Nothing can take your life. We're to fear God and God only, right? God's the one who holds the day of our life and the day of our death in His hand. Nothing else does that. We don't trust in the things of men. We don't trust in horses and chariots and wars and, and power here. We don't trust in that. We trust in God. We trust in Christ by means of the truth of Scripture that we have right here in our own lap. By means of our obedience of faith to the truth. See, that's the gospel-driven heart. A heart that trusts the Word of God because of the God of the Word. So we have to believe it. We have to believe it. God's able to make us stand. And like Paul, we can and ought to be praising Him right now. Paul's just not talking about our future with God. He's talking about right now, everyday living. This is how you stand. This is how you wake up in the morning. This is how you remain through the day. This is how your gospel heart is reflected throughout the day. You are so intimately tied to the truth of the Word of God that you stand. You stand on it. You have conviction about it. You say, I cannot go another direction. This is what the Word of God says. That's the key to all of it. He is Jesus Christ. He's the subject of the gospel. He's the center of our preaching. He's the central figure in all of Scripture. We are established in Christ and we are maintained by Christ. That's why Paul ends in verse 27. He says, to the only wise God. This is the wisdom of God, beloved. This is the wisdom of God. And what a better way to end. What a better way for Paul to end than say, listen, just trust the wisdom of God. Trust the wisdom of God. Our God is the only God. There is no other God. Our God is the only God, and he is perfectly wise. He's the only wise God. Therefore, whatever God is doing, whatever God is allowing by his mercy and according to his grace, it is right. And it is best. And it is for his glory and it is for our good.
Isn't it glorious to know that in the infinite wisdom of God, He made it possible for you and I who have once been in bondage to sin to be freed from that sin by His mercy and according to His grace that was shown to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that by faith in Christ, we are freed and saved. Isn't it glorious to know that He, the only wise God, the one in whom the power of the gospel resides, is the one who has made us His own sons and daughters? Is it any wonder that at the end of all of it, at the end of this theological tone that Paul writes, he just simply says, glory to God forever. Glory to God forever. And he says, amen. Is there anything else to be said? Glory to God forever. Amen. That is the gospel-driven heart. That's the gospel-driven heart. Well, what a joy. What a joy it's been. What a journey. I pray our gospel-driven heart will be reflected in all that we do. Let's thank the Lord together. Father, we once again bow before you and are grateful You have accomplished so much in and through us, with us, according to your great mercy and grace. We have been enriched in our individual lives. We have been enriched in the corporate reality of our church life. We have been so blessed by the truth of this book. So much, Lord, has gone really been filed way back in our minds that we rarely remember what was said. Oh, I trust we will go back. Filter through our notes, filter through the old passage messages that are still available. Re-listen, reacquaint ourselves with those things that we've become foggy on, not for the sake of our own intellectual understanding, but for the sake of our own growth. Pray that we would embrace it fully. Pray that we would know it truly. Pray that the heart of the gospel would be reflected in our lives in the greatest of ways. What a rich book. Lord, there are those who have sat through many, many of our sermons or teaching here who still to this day has not relinquished their hold on their own sin have not repented of their sin and turned to Christ. For whatever reason, by your sovereign hand, you have yet to grant them repentance. We pray that they would repent, that you would grant them repentance unto life, that they would embrace Jesus Christ by faith. They would know what true life really is. That they would know the freedom of no condemnation and being in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to take this message far and wide. Thank you for those who have faithfully done so, who have taught me so much 
from their own lives through our study of this passage. Thank you for their encouragement, their exhortations, even their challenges, Lord. We thank you. Thank you that by your grace and according to your mercy and grace, we have all grown. And may we apply these things for your glory and honor, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.